Welcome to Paint My Mind Podcast with your host, Rasmus Lenthagen. Follow along as we explore a wide range of different topics in search for a greater life and better problems. Now, enjoy the show. Kira McCabe, welcome to the show. Hello. Welcome. How are you? I'm very good. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Well, it's my pleasure. Would Would you give me just a short version of who you are and, and what it is that you do? Hi. Okay. Yeah. So my name's Kira McCabe and I'm a professor of neuroscience, psychopharmacology and mental health at the University of Reading in the UK. Um, and my research is primarily interested in how we can understand better the reward system um, and how that affects our brain activity and our behavior. And the reason that I want to understand that better is to try and understand in more detail disorders like depression, um, even eating disorders, so that we can develop better treatments for people who have um, problems with their reward system. Oh, that's fantastic. You know, I, I think I told you this before, but I found you uh, online. I was looking for, I was reading about uh, something called dopamine fasting or dopamine detoxing. And I found an article that you, you'd written. And uh, I, I was very interested to talk to you because uh, I felt like it'd be good to have someone to explain uh what dopamine fasting is and, and how, it, how it actually works. Because I, from your article, uh, I felt like a lot of people probably m misunderstand what it actually is mm. and how it works. Mm. So what, what is dopamine fasting? Yeah, so I think the first thing maybe to say is that dopamine, what is dopamine? So dopamine is a oh, yeah. neurotransmitter, neurochemical that's um, in our bodies that allows us to send information from one cell to another. And dopamine's been very much um, thought of in relation to the reward system. So dopamine is a neurotransmitter that gets released when you experience something pleasurable and rewarding. Um, and over time, actually, dopamine um, gets released or it fires um, as, as how neurons respond, they, their activity spikes. And over time, neuron, uh, dopamine neurons spike to what's called like a conditioned reinforcer. So over time, it starts to associate a cue or a stimulus with the reward that's going to come, and it starts to fire to the cue. Now, why is this relevant? What's it got to do with dopamine fasting? Well, the idea is that in dopamine fasting, people want to remove maybe the cues or the things that trigger dopamine activity. Um, and the idea is that if, for example, you remove certain stimuli in your environment, um, that you might be able to reduce your brain's dopamine activity. And in turn, somehow that might make you feel better. <clears throat> um, I responded, yes, you're quite right. I responded to some of the articles about dopamine fasting because I think, you know, it kind of gives off this idea that you can fast or reduce your amount of dopamine. But of course, that's not true. Um, you're not able to really reduce the amount of dopamine that you have 
you can reduce the amount of stimulation in your environment. Of course, that makes sense. When you think about going to bed at night, you turn out the light, right? And, you know, you, you turn off your equipment because you don't want stimulation. But how that actually would modify or change, for, for example, even the amounts of dopamine in the system is is a not likely and uh, be extremely really difficult to under to investigate um, because it's not easy to measure the amounts of these neurotransmitters in the body. So um, I suppose my response to the dopamine fasting um, literature is that yes, it's a good idea to reduce stimulation um, and to reduce things in your environment that might be distracting you away from you know the task at hand, i.e., doing your work. Um, you know, turn the turn the notifications off on your phone like I do. Or at night, you know, they say, you know, don't be using your computer or your phone or anything when you're trying to, basically you've gone to bed, so you're trying to sleep. So it's that idea, the overall idea is a good idea. It's that you should be kind of reducing stimulation in the environment to help you carry out whatever it is that you're trying to do. Um, but whether or not and how it affects actual neurotransmitters like dopamine is a lot more complicated. And I think dopamine is one of those mm-hmm. neurotransmitters that gets used a lot in the media, um, but not people don't entirely understand what it does. Oh, I see. So that's really interesting because the reason that I was uh, reading about it was that, uh, well, I've heard from many people in, in videos online that it's supposed to... Uh, be good in many many ways, like uh, help you with your attention span, uh, being present, uh, focus, and things like this. And uh, I I've been struggling with a lot of those things uh, now and when I was younger. Uh, so I thought I'd try it, and I actually did try it. I, I don't know if I did it right or if I did it wrong, but I for a day or two. I shut my phone off, I, there was no screen time, uh, no sugar, stuff like this. And I actually found it very helpful. Yeah. Uh, so if it's not a direct result of the the dopamine being uh, less active, or I don't know how you would say that, but then then what, what would be the reason that it actually seems to to work for a lot of people. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm not saying that it's not related to dopamine. I'm just saying that I think that the terminology dopamine fasting is not quite right. So so you can't really fast Mm -hmm. from dopamine in the sense that just removing some stimulation from the environment, um, for example, a mobile phone, is not going to change the amounts of dopamine. It's not going to um, you know, change the amount of neurotransmitters that you have in the system. Because if that was the case, if we could easily, you know, change the amount of neurotransmitters that we have or the function of our neurotransmitters, we wouldn't survive very long. Um, you know, so these systems are really balanced, very complicated systems that, um, you know, are very hard to manipulate from the outside. So, for example, we know that you can manipulate neurotransmitters like dopamine with drugs. So drugs from the outside taken into the body, drugs like cocaine have hard effects on your dopamine system. So we know exactly how that works. But it's much more, uh, um, less known actually, I should put it the other way. It's much less known how behavioral things in the environment affect our neurotransmitters. 
because they're just not as powerful. So, for example, taking away mm -hmm. a mobile phone is nowhere near the same as taking a drug like cocaine off somebody. Do you see what I mean? So, so people use the terminology yeah. like fasting, withdrawal, addiction when they talk about dopamine because we know that dopamine and other neurotransmitters like the opioids are involved in our responses both to reward and then to uh, drugs of abuse, drugs that you take to make you feel even more reward. And we know that system, we know how it works in relation to drugs and it's very, you can see it literally, you can see how the drugs bind to the system and change it. It's much more difficult to be able to show how using a mobile or not using a mobile phone changes your brain activity or affects your dopamine responses. So what I would say is that in general, the idea is good that you reduce things in the environment um, that are, you know, making it difficult for you to concentrate or do what you want to do. But I just think that the link directly with how with dopamine is a little bit more, um, you know, tenuous. I can explain to you what dopamine does. You know, we know that dopamine responds to the. Um, so, for example, if you if you do have notifications on your phone, a ping on your phone is something that you've learned to associate with a reward. So dopamine is probably being active when you get a ping on your phone. Yes, active. But it's not by taking the phone away, you're not reducing the levels of dopamine. You know, your dopamine will be responding to other things. It's just not responding to that ping. So what I would say is that mm -hmm. maybe we're both saying the same thing. I think that, yes, it's a good idea, but I think it's just sometimes dopamine gets, um, people think about it in the wrong way, that it's not necessarily dopamine that's the problem. It's more that, you know, you're, you're doing things, you're distracting yourself with lots of things that you shouldn't be doing. Um, and while you take that phone yeah. away, dopamine's going to be activated by something else. It's not, dopamine's not going away. I guess that's my point. Yeah, yeah. I see. This is very nice to hear an explanation for it because I was kind of thinking that a lot of people probably have a, have a misconstrued um, view of, of what it actually is. But uh, when you look at things like the phone uh, or the apps that we are using today, because it seems to me like if I put the phone away for a day or half a day even, or, or yeah, even if my dopamine goes to some something else that I'm paying attention to, it doesn't seem to have the same effect. It doesn't seem to, to like a book, for example, it doesn't seem to drag me back in the same way as social media would yeah. or YouTube videos would. Yeah. Uh, or anything like that. Yeah. So, so what would be a reason yeah. um, that yeah. the phone is so... I don't <laughs> want to use the word uh, addic addictive yeah. for a phone because I don't know where to draw the line between yeah. like an impulsive behavior and addiction. But, but why is the phone such a powerful thing that yeah. hooks people in so easily? Yeah, yeah that's good. Um, yeah, so I, I, I think it's because the way, obviously, they've designed them, you know, well, there's many reasons, but um, you have many, many things on your phone. So your phone also is not just one thing like a book, you know, where basically the reward is steady, mm. slow. You have to read many pages to find out what's happening. Um, uh, arguably, you could say, you know, with your phone, with all the different apps and different notifications and, you know, uh, sounds, lights, everything, 
there's a lot more stimulation. It's just not comparable to a book. Mm. Um, so, of course, you're attracted to that. Um, and that's not just dopamine. You're going to have other neurotransmitters involved. So we know, for example, that um, the opioid system in your brain is also responding to pleasurable things. So when you get um, something that you find rewarding or pleasurable or you see something nice or you come across something nice, um, then uh, there's lots of neurotransmitters being stimulated and that's keeping you interested. Of course, yes, dopamine is one that's involved in the expectation. So again, that's that thing where, you know, you lift up your phone and you're checking, you're checking for messages, you're checking for likes, you're checking. And that checking is, is again, probably um, more dopamine related because we know that dopamine is one of the neurotransmitters that's involved in expectation or excitement for something to arrive. So that makes sense. And that makes sense to me why the phone would be more interesting than, than, not necessarily more interesting, I shouldn't say that, but more um, <laughs> stimulating than a book. Um, but not for everybody, but, yeah. but for some people, more stimulating. Um, and again, back to what you said about that you notice that if you don't use the stimulus, um, in this case, a mobile phone for a day or two, that you feel better. Um, again, I would say that that's not necessarily because your dopamine has changed, but it's just to do with Again, that you've maybe it's less stressful, maybe maybe checking your phone or if you're somebody that finds that they have to remove the phone from from yourself, maybe that's more important thing to talk about that that maybe you feel that you have a problem with, you know, check. It could be your phone. Some people's check with me. I have to turn off the notifications of my emails on my computer because I'm looking at my computer. I'm trying to do some work. And I get a little message box and it's so distracting. If nothing else, it's, even if it's not rewarding, it's just distracting and you can't get anything else done. And if you can't get anything else done by the end of the day, even this could be in your situation where because you've been spending too much time on your phone, then that's why you might feel more stressed and, you know, um, disappointed. And so if you take the phone away, it's really not got an awful lot to do with dopamine in that sense. It's more to do with distraction, allowing you to do the things during the day that you otherwise couldn't do. Um, and like, again, I'm guilty of this too, you know, looking at my phone at night before I go to sleep and then the next day feeling exhausted and thinking, you know, not thinking, oh, well, maybe if I just put my phone away, um, I'd be able to sleep because you're trying to do, you can't be looking at your phone and all the notifications and do other things at the same time. So I, I think yeah, of it more in those yeah. terms. And in that sense, Yes, it's that the idea of dopamine fasting is healthy because it's the idea that if you have a problem with stimuli, it doesn't have to be your phone. It could be YouTube. It could be the telly. It could be whatever it is. You bought a new motorbike and you can't stop thinking about it. And all you want to do is fix the motorbike instead of doing your job. Then, you know, again, that's something that you need to have a bit of self-control and you need to start thinking and this is where, you know, it is similar to an addiction in the sense that you have to start looking at your behavior, realizing that whatever that distraction is, is a problem for you. Because not everybody has a problem with their phone. Not everybody checks it all the time. Some people go out and they don't even, they forget their phone. Who are those people? Um, you know, they, they, they walk around with, without any distractions. So they don't need any interventions. But people, it could be anything that's yeah. a problem for you. 
first of all, you know, figuring out that you have this particular issue that's getting in the way of what you want to do. And then in that sense, it's it's more like a any other addiction, you know, because it just means if you think of addiction in a, in a loose way, that it's to do with a problem for of your behavior that you're not able to do and be present or do the things that you want to do. And so it's identifying what the issue is first and then, you know, a number of steps to try and remove it and um, start to see if it makes your life better and easier and you're more happy without it. Yeah. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I I like the way you look at it when it's it's not only dopamine, but it's, it's just maybe very stressful to get so many impressions thrown at you at all times. And when you think about it, if you go back just 50 or 100 years, I mean, I can probably I can probably uh, experience like in, in 10 minutes now on my phone as many things as, as a person would in their whole lifetime. Yeah. When they didn't have the phone or anything like this, because I mean, imagine you scrolling on TikTok or Instagram in 10 minutes you could see like 800 people talking about different things. Yeah. And it's it's not shocking that that would be very stressful for, for the brain. Yes. Uh, yeah. In any way. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So it's distracting, you know, in the basic sense. It's also, it could be, depending on what you're looking at, stressful. It could be negative images. It could be, you know, harmful um, and then you imagine what that's doing to your mind. It might make it even more difficult to concentrate on the task that you're supposed to be doing. Um, so, so yeah, I know that some people use the internet um, and if it's on their phone or whatever, they're looking at really nice things, you know, like puppies um, and pictures of cats. Uh, funny things, but a lot of the time, even, you can't even control what you see. So you're going to see a lot of different yeah. images and a lot of them are negative because, of course, negative images get a lot of traction. And yeah, I think just overall, anything, if we just talk about um, problem behavior, really, in general, anything that you find in your environment that's distracting or causing you stress, or um, taking you away from what it is that you should be doing, then, of course, it makes sense to trial removing it or using it less. Um, And I, I, I think the phone one's a good example, because I think a lot of people are probably distracted and seeing negative things on the internet through their phone and don't even realize. They don't even know that that's happening to them. And I think that's really interesting. You know, so people are not as productive when yeah. they've got their phone or they're not as present with their family and their children because they're on their phone, but they don't even realize that. So I think that's something that's interesting as well, that they don't realize. So if the dopamine fasting movement it is a good thing in a way. It highlights that, you know, why we're attracted to these shiny, flashing, very, um, you know, animated stimuli. You know, it's because, yeah, our brain does. We have a brain system or a reward system um, that's uh, tuned to look for um, not only threat, but things that are what we call in the business salient and salient just means grabbing your attention. You know, it's why Mm -hmm. I guess, I guess in gambling, the lights are flashing, you know, it's everything to get you to attend to it. Whether you interact with it then after that is up to you and your self-control, I guess. 
or you know over time with yeah. with hard with hard drugs and things over time obviously you become physically addicted physical addiction with behavioral things like phones and gambling um well gambling is actually now it is considered a behavioral addiction but with your phone and all there's less research into how it actually affects your brain and if it changes dopamine etc but like i said at the beginning i think it's it it we know how dopamine works we know that it's interested in flashing stimuli things that are very gets our attention that's that's its job so it does that very well but removing the stimulus um is actually more about not so much about changing your dopamine or helping your dopamine or you know giving your dopamine a break because your dopamine you can't control that it it responds naturally to its stimuli but what you're doing instead is you're allowing yourself probably to avoid negative information to avoid uh things that are uh, taking you away from what you should be doing and i think that's a good thing about dopamine fasting yes yes and it's it's very interesting to see um like you you touched on it there that most people are not aware of um their phone use or the use use of technology you have to be very self-aware and you have to look at like um Absolutely. i had i don't know if if you're aware of um, the digital wellness lab is a guy from harvard he his name is uh, dr michael rich and i had him on the show a week ago and he said uh we should we should bring back boredom and that was very interesting to me because uh, when i look around me and uh, at other people but also myself it's almost like we're scared to be bored and be with our with our own th- thoughts yeah so as soon as nothing's going on we go for the phone or yes, anything absolutely. else that's uh, stimulating yes and uh, i think you have to be very self aware about that and maybe even if it's uh it can feel very hard to just sit with your thoughts but just i mean it's not going to affect your it feels hard now but like just try it you know yeah. try it just yeah. sit sit with your thoughts for a minute and and just see what happens yeah cuz i in my experience uh, if i do that more often that's when i get um a little bit more creative and i i i, I don't know i feel like my brain starts firing uh, on a level where it's where i want it to be yeah when i'm not that distracted by other other things and to be bored is boring but it's not dangerous Absolutely. No. I completely agree. Completely agree. And it's the same even with my own um situation, my own work, everything. I, you know, I have lists of things that I have to do and again, back to the reward system, how how it works is you put off the things that are maybe more boring, the things that take longer because you don't get a quick reward. You don't get a hit if you will, you know, to use um yeah. the language that they use. Uh, in addiction you know that you don't get that stimulation that immediately make and then you know if you do the the things that are quick and easy then you can tick that off your list and i i agree i believe in lists yeah. and uh, but you feel better you immediately feel better like you've achieved something you've done it already it's only 10 o'clock and you've already done something whereas the things that take longer like creative things if you have to sit and think about a new plan or new idea You know, again, I would agree with you. I think in this society, you know, we are definitely not used to being left to think. We've no time to think. We're never 
allowed to, um, you know, percolate our ideas and come up with uh, plans. And and that's because of distractions, whether it's TV, you know, socializing, um, our phones, whatever it is. Um, we are living in an age where we're bombarded, yeah, by lots and lots of stimulation. I suppose from a neuroscientist perspective, what I can add to that, because I think everybody knows that, I think I could add is that neurotransmitters are, are, are not going to be changed just because you've decided not to look at your phone, though. They, they will just work to mm. do something else. Um, and we don't change the levels of our neurotransmitters. I guess that's what I try to get across to people, that, that we use our understanding of neurotransmitters probably not quite right. But that's okay because it doesn't really matter. I guess the big general message is that if you want to be more creative or live maybe more calmly, have less stress, um, less negative things in your life, then it probably is a good idea to not be so easily distracted. And that's not it's not easy to be not distracted by your phone. But as you said, first step, awareness, maybe keep a diary, maybe start like for one week. Write down how often you use your phone, you know, or whatever your distraction is, you know, what jobs you got done, what are the things you could do in your list that day. And then after a week, you have evidence to say, you know, this is what this this does to me. This is I can't get to sleep. I, you know, but, you know, that's um, that is effort to do that, to, to, to look at yourself and be really critical but I think a lot of people would don't do it. And it's those quick, easy, the phone is quick, easy, easy rewards. That's why we keep going back to it. But the awareness that, you know, again, with my own work, that if I need to write something or I need to do something that's a piece of work that's much longer and harder, then I do. I, I absolutely turn off my email. I close my email, you know, for hours and hours of the day. Because if I keep it open, I can't, you know, Get. And I know all of this and I'm self-aware, but I still need to turn it off yeah. or I get distracted. So I think, yeah, I think everybody needs to have a think about is there other things that they'd like to be doing and what's standing in the way of that? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, a lot of it, in my opinion, is like it's it's not so much um, that that. I don't know. I, I like to say, like, if you're if you're watching Netflix three hours a day or you're on your phone for hours every day, you're wasting your time. But I think a lot of people don't see it that way because they're not thinking about what they could have done yeah, instead. Yeah. I mean, I let's say that you uh, you want to achieve something and it's going to take you a couple of years to achieve that no matter what. Yeah. But I mean, if you... If, if you can get two more hours every day or not even every day, but like a half an half yeah. hour a day working yeah. on that thing. Yeah. Imagine how much faster the process would be to get to your end yes. goal. Yeah. And all you're really missing is a show on Netflix that you won't remember in five yeah. years anyways. Yes. Yeah. So to me, it seems like very uh, like uh, it should be clear to everyone what's the smarter move. Yeah. But people still get hooked. And so do I. And um, I don't know, I'm trying to figure out how to help myself and, yeah. and more than that, the people listening to the show, how to stop uh, looking for a short term reward and and go for the long term instead. Yeah. 
Yeah. Do, well, have you thought about yeah. that at all? In, in... Yeah, I think like what, kind of similar to what I've just mentioned, I think it's um, obviously it's not super easy. You need some level of control, um, but uh, awareness to begin with. So if, if you think, so there's different people, right? Some people have no problem with the, or they think they have no problem and that's fine. If they, if they think they have no problem, they've, they've probably no problem. Um, with what they're doing and what they want to do. But if you are the type of person that feels like, oh, you know, you get frustrated with it, you get um, feel more negative after using something like your phone um, and the different social media apps, then I, I, I personally think a good way, and they do do this in addiction research, I know, is to just be aware, first of all, that there's a problem. Start talking about it. Be aware that, like, this is something that you're going to look into keep note like a diary or just just notes every day about you know what you want to do that day what you want to achieve and even if it's not something really big and important but it's like you want to walk the dog or you want to visit your elderly parents or you want to hang out with a certain friend that you never see anymore uh, because you never have time um things like that so write lists of what it is you really want to do uh you want to cook a really nice dinner but you never have time um, and then look at what are you doing with your time? And if your phone, it might not be your phone, but if it is your phone or these distractions, as you said, it might not even be two or three hours in a row. It could be half an hour in the morning, half an hour at lunchtime, half an hour, but it all adds up. Then you could, at least you'll be aware with that list of what it is that's distracting you. And then you start to say, okay, well, let's try, you know, removing it and trying to book in my time to do other things. And like I say, I'm a great believer in lists and I have, I couldn't function without lists. I mean, I, I, every day I'm, I'm looking and ticking off my list and there's nothing wrong with ticking off small, easy rewards. You know, if that keeps you happy, you know, of course we've got to be happy as well. We can't be miserable and reward at the end of the day, even if it's short, quick rewards is still reward. And it's what keeps us going. You know, it's what makes us happy, but it's a balance between our lives being full of stimulation and reward versus, um, you know, or, or being all of that and not productive or or not getting uh, to do other things. And then you feel frustrated or you feel negative, actually, in, you know. So I think it's a balance. Yeah. Trying to f- figure out is your balance okay? And if not, start writing it down and then start to think about how you could replace some of the problem behavior with things that you want to do that you feel you never have time to do. Yeah. I, I actually touched on this uh, on a previous episode on, on making lists and stuff like this, because I think it can be a very good thing, as you said, but I've experienced this myself that I'd, I would make lists and not put it in like a specific order or anything, but I would make a list for the day, the things I needed to get done. And I would do all the easier things. And like at the end of, I, I would feel very productive. Yeah. But like two weeks later, when I looked back, I actually didn't accomplish anything because a yes. lot of the things on the list were like just day-to-day things that didn't yes. really take me in any direction. They just yes. needed to get done. So I think you need to look at it and and in a way where it's like, what are you actually putting on the list? And yeah. what in what priority are you doing the list? Yes, yes. That too. Yeah, well, I do yeah. that. I mean, I have on my, I could show you my lists. 
<laughs> I've got lists everywhere. <laughs> and um, I put like stars oh, beside. Yeah. I literally rank them. Um, and that can change day to day as well, depending on priorities or depending on emails that you get. Yeah. So, um, you, you know, you're probably on that list somewhere. And um, what I do is <laughs> ah, I'll rank them or and then I can change the ranking and all. Yeah. So it's a, it's a work in progress all yeah. the time, the list. But you're right. Yeah. Um, I've, I've read somebody else um, said this, and I think this is brilliant about uh, what to do with, if you do have a list, is that you really should start in the morning with the hardest one that's yes. hard that's it's really like that, hard uh, to do yeah it is very hard i read that book by brian tracy it's called eat that frog have you read it i haven't no sounds good it's it's a very good book it's short it's like 100 pages uh but he's like a productivity guru brian tracy and uh it's a very good book but eat that frog basically what it means is you should eat the biggest and ugliest frog in the morning because you're going to have to eat it anyways. Yeah. So just get be it done over. with it. Just yeah, do yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. And, and yeah, I took a lot from that book. That could be a good recommendation for anyone listening, um, yes. actually. Yes, I look Really good it. book. Yeah. So I yeah. need to do more so of that to, myself. I need to do that too. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's not easy, uh, but I, I think you can make it a habit eventually. You just got to push through the first the tough phase of it and then you get used to it and it's like exercise. it's like anything i, I yeah like people yes, exercise I, I was just gonna thing. say yeah i i do that i wake up at like 4 45 in the morning and i go straight to the gym and that was very hard in the beginning but now i've done it for years and it's actually not hard at all so yeah. uh i mean i think making anything a habit it becomes easier um, yes with yeah. time Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I wanted to touch on something else. Uh, we actually touched on it uh, a few minutes ago. But when people say um, I'm addicted to my phone or like that person is addicted to their phone, um, it sounds very I mean, ad addiction itself is a very strong word. And I wanted to figure out where the line is between like an impulsive or uh, impulsive behavior and an actual addiction because like when I think of someone who's addicted to let's say uh, heroin I mean that person will literally uh, ignore his hunger he will ignore his children he will yeah. ignore like things like that to get his hit of, of heroin so comparing that then to like something like the phone or or because I mean, even people who say I'm addicted to the phone, if you if you hear your baby crying, you you will still go and take care of your baby. You wouldn't yeah. stay there and like yeah. sit yeah. on the phone. So there must be a, a big difference. I just don't know where to draw the line yeah. between like an impulsive behavior and an, an addiction. Yeah. Is yeah, there any clear way to look at that? So I, it's not clear actually, and. Um, I suppose the way I think of it is, uh, so like your phone, things like that would be kind of considered, if addictions at all, would be considered like a behavioral addiction. So you're addicted to that behavior because it's not it's not like, uh, as opposed to a drug addiction, which is the one that we're all familiar with and the terminology yeah. comes from the drug addiction literature. Um, 
it's not completely clear where you would draw the line between a behavioral addiction and a drug addiction. But to keep it really simple, the way I look at it is, um, as I kind of mentioned before briefly, a drug addiction is where you take something into the body and we can see it attaching, physically attaches to your neurotransmitters or your receptor sites for neurotransmitters. And it, it, it either makes you, like with cocaine, it gives you more, it allows dopamine to hang around longer, you feel more reward and all of that. And that's well documented and we can see that. With a behavioral addiction, even with like gambling, um, which again, I think in people's minds, they understand gambling as an addiction now and they can see very clearly the behaviors. Again, even with when you look at the neuroscience in relation to gambling behavior, it's um, there are similarities with drug addiction, um, but it's not drugs and behavioral addictions. I think the easy way to think about it is kind of different on the intensity or the way in which the, um, the amount of damage that it can kind of do to the brain. So if you abuse drugs over a period of time, you actually change the neurobiology of the brain because the brain compensates mm. for that bombardment of the drug. Um, whereas with a behavioral addiction, it's kind of like the, the abuse levels are just not as, as strong on the biology, if that makes sense. But that's not to say that there isn't evidence that behavior like gambling looks like addiction, affects the body and the brain like an addiction because it does. And there's lots of neuroscience on that as well. I suppose to keep it really simple, yeah. I'm, trying, I'm trying to say it's about intensity levels. It's kind of, you know, um, like you get a, you gave a good example. You're looking on your phone, your baby starts crying or your dog's barking. You know, something else needs your attention. Um, you still have the ability to switch away from the phone and do the other thing. And I think with um, yeah. over time with drugs of abuse, that ability to switch your behavior becomes much, much harder just because the system itself is disrupted more by the drug than a behavior would change the body. Does that make sense? Um, so I think of it as sort yeah, of like, yeah. an, like an intensity. Um, the other thing to say is that, uh, again, how, well, there's two things, uh, I suppose, to say you people all talk about withdrawal. That's another real major part of something being described as addictive. Like if, if you take in a substance, for example, chocolate, which is something I use a lot in my research, people just, you know, discuss all the time that they're addicted to chocolate and chocolate craving and you know, all of this. Um, but again, one of the things that if you really wanted to try and separate, you know, something that's addictive from something that's not addictive would be withdrawal. So withdrawal from a drug like cocaine or heroin has really major biological effects that can be measured in the body. Um, so you hear about going mm. cold turkey and all of this and the sweats and all. There's physiological reactions to that drug being taken away. You just don't get that the same with food addiction. So even if you want to call it food addiction, people that are really, really um, responding to food and want more food and that kind of thing, they just don't have the same withdrawal effects. Again, so I like to think of it more as an intensity level. It's that, yes, you can be addicted to behavioral things and you can be addicted to things like food, but you're not, the effects of the addiction are not as strong as drugs of abuse and the the area that we know much about in relation to 
how the reward system is being manipulated by drugs of abuse and being changed, the biology is being changed. It's less so with these addictions that are not drugs. Does that make sense? Um, So it can happen. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. That's why the, the line between them is blurred because... At what point, yeah. you know, do you say this is a full-blown biological um, effect, a change in my system because of the abuse or the overuse is basically the same idea, overusing something. So one yeah. way then to know is maybe don't worry about that idea so much and think more about um, is it a problem for you? Because, again, another issue that you have is somebody's use of something. Like if you're a a social media creative, then you're on the Internet all day and you have no problems. Um, But if your job is something else or you're supposed to be doing the school run and you're on the phone, um, then that's a problem for you. So it's it's not so much about don't worry so much about the terminology. I think it's thinking about do you have a problem? And by problem, I mean is it getting in the way of your normal functioning, your normal day-to-day behavior? Are you getting in trouble over it? Is anybody complaining? Do other people report that yeah. you've got, got a problem? When all of these things come together, you could start to say, okay, maybe I do have a problem with it. Maybe I need to start writing down my use and how it affects me. Um, for some people, yeah. the same amount of use is no problem. And for some people, even less use is problematic. So it's very individual. And I think it's better to think of it as compared to drugs. It's less intensive effects. But if it's causing you problems in your day-to-day functioning, then that's when you might need either help or self-help. Start to think yourself how you could change that behavior for your own good. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I think uh, it can be very, very hard, but just being honest with oneself, it it can be terrifying to look inwards and and say, is this a a problem with the phone or with anything uh, like that? But I think it's worth uh, looking at. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, the people around you, you know, will probably have something to say, perhaps, you know, they might know, they might be the first person to indicate, you know, you're always on your phone, or you're, you know, you're, you're always at the the gym, you know, there's, like, there's, there's use at the gym is good, but maybe not all the time. That's also not, not right either, you know, so it's this kind of idea that there's finding the balance, just find the balance that makes your life less stressful, and more productive. Yes. So, but even with um, the heavier things like uh, heroin or cocaine addiction, um, how much does the environment uh, matter? Because I heard um, during the Vietnam War, a ton of the soldiers, the U.S. soldiers, got addicted to heroin in Vietnam. But I heard someone tell this story on on a different podcast and... I think he said upwards of 80% of those people who are addicted to heroin in Nam, when they got back to the to the US, they just quit. Mm. Mm. Like cold turkey, no problems. Most of most of the people who had a bad problem in Vietnam went back to the US and just was able to stop 
with I mean maybe not with no problems but yeah but way way easier than you would have thought yeah so that yeah. makes me think that the the environment you're in must play a huge role in in absolutely both yeah. being addicted and and quitting absolutely absolutely and and actually you're making me think of so many things to say actually I don't know where to start but <laughs> you're right I mean your environment is uh, basically a trigger or a cue so there's two things there. You could start off just talking about, like I said before, the way reward system works, for example, dopamine, is that if it, dopamine does respond to rewards. But if it gets rewards that's expected all the time, it actually doesn't fire so much to that reward anymore. What it does is it starts to fire to the cue. We call it a cue, the conditioned reinforcer, or what in the environment that it has learned to associate that the reward is coming. So in um, drug addicts, for example, or drug users, I should say, um, what they what you find is that the the paraphernalia that they the needles, the environment, the room that they're in, the person that they take it with, when they're around those stimuli, that actually activates a reward system, and that we know that dopamine does that. So dopamine starts to get to fire and is interested in the cues that will say that the reward is coming. So we know that hmm. the stimulus, uh, the environment indicates um, whether or not you're going to get something. And, th and that's why for your phone or even think about smoking, if you're trying to quit something or trying to remove use of your phone, but you're sitting beside somebody else who's on their phone or you're sitting beside somebody smoking and you're trying to stop smoking, that's really hard. So that's the, the cue that I'm talking about. That's the conditioned reinforcer. Your reward is already responding to see, seeing somebody else on their phone and seeing, you know, somebody smoking. You want it. So if you find that these things are a real problem for you and you want to remove them, then I'm not saying you need to remove all your smoking friends or anybody that uses a phone. But be aware that being around that situation is going to make it harder for you to quit. So it's the same thing. You hear this all the time, don't you? That everybody knows that like if you're a smoker and you're trying to stop smoking, but your partner's still smoking, ugh, that makes it really hard for people. Or you're on a diet and your yeah. partner brings home a big chocolate cake. I mean, that's really hard. So it's the same idea that, that this environment is going to trigger your reward system. And so if you need to remove that stimulus, it has to be removed in your surrounding environment as well to make it easier for, for yourself within reason, you know, within reason. And I guess yeah. that's a bit, again, that's, we've come back to the dopamine fasting idea because that's what that idea was, you know, remove all these stimuli and you won't get, you won't get um, caught back up in the behavior. And that to some degree makes total sense. Um, but with the environment and stress that you were talking about with the war, I guess that's two things. Um, maybe maybe everybody was doing drugs. So again, you're in an environment where everybody's doing it. It becomes normalized. That's one aspect. And then also the other aspect would be the situation of the stress itself. So you're in a very negative stressful yeah. situation. And for sure, there's been lots of research on the interaction between research and reward processing. And um, we know that if an animal, for example, um, and I've done some work on this, if, if an animal is in a stressful situation, then they're more likely to take drugs of abuse than an animal that's not in a, in, in a stressful situation. So there is 
there does seem to be an interaction between stress and reward, um, which again complicates things. But that would make sense to yeah. me why when those people came back from Vietnam, they're obviously put into a very different environment. So the cues are gone. Yes. Lots of cues are gone. So the cues of their other friends taking the drugs is gone. The, you know, the paraphernalia of the drugs is gone. They probably can't have, ac- there's no access to the drugs. So that makes it harder. Um, the social, um, what would you say? The social judgment is now here. Um, all of those things, there's many, many factors would make it easier for those people to not take the drugs again. And then the other thing would be, um, so the the flip side of the stress is that research shows that if you are very rewarded in your situation, you're already getting rewards, um, you're very fulfilled, then you won't be as easily um, vulnerable to taking the drug of abuse. So that means mm-hmm. so there's so there's lots of things happening. There's the the environment itself being removed, the stressful environments removed, the paraphernalia, the you know the the cues of drug taking are removed, and also you're back in an environment that maybe you're getting other things out of life now. Your environment has changed. You're getting reward. There's not much reward yes. in a war field. Not much reward. Only drugs. Whereas when yeah. you're back in your normal life, maybe they're getting reward, family, friends, socializing. And because they're getting rewarded, there's less need to look for things that are going to make them feel better like drugs. Yeah. Is, is this the reason why um, it would seem like this is the case anyways, that uh, people who are in shittier uh, life situations turn to drugs and alcohol way, way faster than other yeah. people it's not to say that <laughs> successful people or ha- happy in citation marks happy people don't abuse drugs or alcohol but it just seems like if you're in a very shitty situation and maybe you're very lonely or you're very poor it would be much easier to turn that way yeah i think so i think there is some evidence for that um i'm not an expert on um mm-hmm you know, the, the the factors that go towards why one person would become addicted over another. But there is definitely animal research um, to show that stress interacts with the reward system and you're more sensitive to rewards if you're stressed. So if you think people who yeah. are in a worse situation, like a more stressful, and people on the lower end of the socioeconomic spectrum are arguably in a more stressful environment because they're less certain of, you know, jobs are less certain of how they're going to afford things. You know, we're in a cost of living crisis now in the UK and people are more stressed, more vulnerable then to looking for rewards probably. And then that makes sense as to they could then be more vulnerable to becoming addicted to rewards, like uh, rewards that are, for some people it could be, you know, your phone or uh, for other people, it could be drugs of abuse or it could be gambling and things like that. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Yeah. So you mentioned uh, doing some research on uh, or with uh, animals. T- tell me a bit about that, what what you've been yeah. involved in. And- yes. Yeah, so we did some work. I was involved in some work um, when I worked in America and looking at drug addiction, actually, drug addiction models in animals, in primates, non-human primates. 
And so those that work was involved in, in looking at some of the things that we were just talking about at how differences in your position in your environment, so your social position, whether you're the most dominant person, monkey in your environment or the most subordinate so the the animal that's um sort of the lowest down in the social hierarchy that work looked at how that uh, situation affected the animal's uh, vulnerability to take drugs and what that work showed is that the animals that were in the most vulnerable um, seem to be more sensitive to the drugs, i.e. they took more drugs and they took the, I think they took the drugs more often. Um, so the idea is that, again, from that work, the suggestion is, oops, um, the, the suggestion from that work is that when you are f- getting reward, if you will, uh, whatever that is from your peers, from your work, from your society you feel rewarded and fulfilled you're less vulnerable to abuse drugs because you're less likely to look for rewards elsewhere easy rewards i mean drugs at the end of the day make people it is relatively i suppose easy to take and make people feel euphoric you know they feel fantastic and you imagine if your environment is not very nice it's not very good then this is a kind of, you know, people talk about escapism or self-medication with drugs to make you feel better. It, it just yeah. makes sense. But I guess from the research that I was involved in, it also showed how when you um, sort of like how this is related to brain activity as well, because they also measured dopamine binding. And what that means is they're, they're measuring kind of the function of dopamine. So not just the firing, but um, kind of, you know, <clears throat> the movement of dopamine or the amount of dopamine available in the system. And what they showed is that, again, there's a relationship between their dopamine amount and, um, or they call it dopamine binding. It's basically the function of dopamine, how much dopamine is being used, if you will. And um, they showed that there's a relationship between that and your um vulnerability to take drugs so the animals that had more dopamine binding they were the animals that were more dominant in the environment so they were getting more enriched Hmm. they were the animals that were getting more from their environment they had more dopamine activity and they also took less drugs very interesting so it's almost like uh this might be a bad example but it seems to me like people who take drugs or abuse alcohol are missing something else in their life more than other people are yes I, it could be would that makes would that yeah. make sense yes it could be and it could be a part of it absolutely it could be a part of it and it's hard to say exactly because there's so many factors i think the easiest way to look at it is that you know the, if you take it again from a very neuroscientific reward perspective the reward system is always there. It's always active. It's looking for rewards. And if you get rewards in your life through your friends, your family, your job, your dog, your, you know, your exercise, your diet, whatever it is that you're doing makes you feel good. You have lots of um, confidence, self-esteem. You feel good. Everything's going well. Then you're less vulnerable to uh, um, needing other rewards that are not good for you. Does that make I think, does that make sense? Whereas if you're not yes. getting rewards 
if you're not getting nice rewards from your friends, your family, your lifestyle, your job, you're probably more stressed. You're also getting low reward. So you're going to look to see where can I get it? Where's Where can I get it? Yeah. Oh, look at this shiny thing flashing on the screen. Is this going to give me my rewards? So um, yeah. it's a combination of many factors. You know, it's it's not black and white, but that's there is research to suggest that there's vulnerability to seeking out rewards depending upon your environment and whether you're in an enriched enriched environment or not. Is there a gene that uh, well they, there's something they call the the addiction gene right I've heard of this before and uh, uh, what it's supposed to be I think is genetically it's passed down to some people and it makes you um, uh, more easily addicted to two things so I've heard that and I think a lot of people have heard that but then I heard uh, Dr. Gabor Mate talk oh, yeah. about it and he had a very different view which I found very very interesting he was saying that uh, there's actually not th there is a gene I think he he says but it doesn't have the effect that we think it has he was saying that what you actually inherit is trauma and not it's not a gene that makes you addicted, but, and it made sense because if, let's say my grandfather maybe was an alcoholic and my father is traumatized from growing up with an alcoholic father, maybe he was abused or maybe for any reason, that trauma then turned my dad into an alcoholic because it's a coping mechanism. Mm -hmm. And then in turn, maybe he, maybe I was traumatized by my father and so instead of it being a gene, is actually trauma that is passed on generation by generation. Have you ever looked at any of this? So it makes it makes me think of the classic nature-nurture debate, um, which I think is yeah. what he's probably talking about. And um, I mean, when he talks about, I don't know, I don't know this in detail, what he specifically said, but if he's talking about trauma being passed on, he might be talking about the environmental influences. So what he's probably meaning yeah. is that if you grow up, because trauma at the end of the day is, you know, like um, being having something traumatic happen to you is, is an environmental situation that people are usually talking about. So what he might mean there yeah. is that um, being, you know, growing up with somebody who's, yes, an alcoholic or somebody who's depressed or any of those things that you're not only do you have a genetic predisposition if there is one, you know, if these disorders are heritable, so there's a likely, likely hundreds of genes. I don't know of any one gene. If if there's one gene that's news to me, it's likely hundreds. Okay. Hundred. If there was, if there was one gene, we would know about it. It's likely hundreds and hundreds All of right. genes interacting um, to make you vulnerable or predisposed or you know have a genetic risk. All of these things make this mean the same thing. Um, also called a biomarker, you know, a kind of biological risk that's passed on. Um, but not everybody with the risk gets the disorder. So why is that? It's likely yes. because you have to be, again, in a certain environment or have certain triggers. So, again, what we would call maybe life insults or 
you know, like negative things that happen to you, perhaps a bereavement, perhaps a, a trauma yourself, like a car accident, or there's many, many factors and everybody's different. But every likely um, what's happening to anybody who gets a disorder is likely that is contributed to by a mixture of a genetic vulnerability and an environmental uh, impact. Mm-hmm. So there's a combination of things. Um, and we don't we don't know for sure. Um, but the nature nurture debate is very well documented and lots of studies have been done on this um, for other disorders, for many, many disorders, actually. Um, and what they show is it's usually a combination of things. Um, for some people, mm-hmm. there might not be any genetic risk, um, but it's because they've just been in terrible situations and then a disorder develops. And then for other people, um, so if we talk about depression, for example, and mental health, something that I do research myself in now, um, there's not always these clear uh, causal pathways. There doesn't seem to be, nobody can seem to find any reason for why that person feels the way they do. There doesn't seem to be a genetic risk or environmental factors that play into it. So it's complicated. But when he talks yeah. about pass, passing on trauma, it's likely what he means is, you know, the growing up and being in environments that are negative or, you know, where a child yes. is learning associations, learning maybe that alcohol's fine, learning that my parents drink and everybody drinks and everybody I know drinks and drinking's fine. You know, so that can be passed on and you wouldn't think of it as a trauma. Um, and again, it's back to that thing about, you know, not not having a few drinks isn't bad for everybody. I mean, it's not great for your physical health. And we know that. But I mean, it doesn't lead every not a few drinks doesn't lead everybody to be an alcoholic either. So so it's yeah. it's a combination of many factors. But we do know that genetic risk can be passed on likely via hundreds of genes. Yes, let's just say it's very complex. <laughs> yes, that's always the answer. <laughs> <laughs> of course. Well, I mean, the brain and the body and the human experience is is very complex in, in all ways. So uh, um, and I yeah, think it's hard to figure out what's what. In... Exactly. And there's something called compensation, which people may not have heard of. So you can compensate both physically and, you know, psychologically. So just because you were born into maybe a really bad situation or you have genetic risk for something, it doesn't necessarily, that's why I was saying before, it doesn't necessarily mean that you will get the the, the negative outcome. Rather, you know, the, yeah. the body is extremely able to adapt. The body and mind is able to adapt to many, many situations. We call it resilience. You know, and there's a lot of work trying to understand, you know, what makes some people resilient and other people not. So I think an area that's fascinating is people who have the vulnerabilities to certain disorders and they have the environmental situation and yet they don't get the disorder. What is it? What is it about them that makes them resilient? That's fascinating. And we don't fully understand that, certainly not in mental health. Um, It's likely related to you know, positive environments, being rewarded, being enriched. and But it's not, it's not, we're not completely sure. Um, there's hypotheses and ideas about why it might be, but it's really interesting because if we knew what, co- what 
allowed people to be resilient in the face of lots of negative things, uh, biology and environment, then we could harness that and try and use that information to help other people. Um, and that would be really interesting. So resilience is something that um, is really fascinating, I think, to think about in a research context. Oh, absolutely. And and I would be very interested to see where, if we can finally figure out what what that is and, and how to use it to help people, that would be amazing. Um, there was one last thing I wanted to touch on before I, I let you go. And um, so last year, uh, and don't quote me on any of this, but I think there was a, a big meta-analysis or, or something like that looking at the um, effects of SSRIs or antidepressive drugs. And from what I read, and I only read a few short things, I never dove very deep into it, uh, they made it sound like antidepressive drugs actually probably doesn't have an effect at, at all for most people. And someone made the case that depression is probably not a, a chem chemical imbalance in the brain as we previously thought. And I yeah. know you, you're you uh, knowledgeable on the topic of depression. So I was wondering if you yeah. could explain or, or if you had looked at this. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So um, depression um, is a disorder of low mood and also sometimes is quite comorbid with feelings of anxiety as well. But depression is like low mood and feeling lack of interest, lack of pleasure. And um as we've talked about, um, you know, we know the reward system, for example, involves a number of neurotransmitters, dopamine being the most famous of those. And equally low mood, um, which is the sadness and even anxiety and feelings of um, panic are thought to be un underpinned or um, caused by changes in your serotonin neurotransmitter. So one of the main treatments for depression is antidepressants, the most widely used drug for depression, antidepressants. And the, the, they usually work by um, increasing the amount of serotonin that's available. So they're the ones that you may have heard of as selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. And it just does what it says. It, it blocks the reuptake of serotonin into the system. So it allows serotonin mm -hmm. to stay in the system a bit longer. Um, and the idea is that um, well, the idea has always been from different research studies is that there seems to be some sort of imbalance or dysfunction of serotonin that is causing this feelings of low mood, of sadness. Um, and so that's why these drugs are used. Um, but it's been difficult, I think, to prove that when you reduce, for example, serotonin in somebody, um, that that then causes this low mood. And so that's why a study came out recently um, from, I think it was in, was it Imperial in London, um, to say that actually they did a, <clears throat> a study of looking at all the studies and they said, oh, there is no clear evidence that, ser that serotonin is the main cause or, or having low serotonin is the main cause of depression. And what happened then was that a lot of people said, oh, that means that antidepressants don't work and we shouldn't be taking antidepressants for depression. But I guess, again, 
there's two sides to this. I guess it's not that straightforward. So the people who believe in antidepressants, think that they work and, and advocate for their use is because there's a lot of research equally been done on the effectiveness of antidepressants and do they work? And what they do is these clinical trials, they look at given a number of people an antidepressant and another number of people a placebo drug. So a, a drug as well, but the person doesn't know if they're getting the, the active drug or if they're getting the placebo, the drug with nothing in it. Um, and though you need to have a placebo control trial um, to make sure that whatever you do see yeah. is a drug effect. And so they're what you, you may have heard of, like uh, randomized control trials, clinical trials of drugs. And all of those, yes. there's been meta-analysis of those. A meta-analysis is a big analysis of all the other analysis. And those analysis have shown that time and time again, that antidepressants do seem to work for depression. So what's uh -huh. going on? So it seems to be that we just don't understand fully how they work. So they do seem to work, and mostly for people with more severe depression or even moderate to severe depression, they respond best to an antidepressant treatment. So back to is it serotonin, is it not serotonin? Well, these antidepressants do seem to work, and how they work is we know that they manipulate, they change the levels of serotonin that's available. So even though <clears throat> you might take another study where you just deplete serotonin or you get rid of serotonin or you change serotonin, you can't induce depression, you can't cause depression. It doesn't mean that when you give somebody an antidepressant that changes their serotonin, that it won't affect their mood. In fact, this, the results suggest that it does affect their mood. So hmm. to summarize, it seems that antidepressants do work in the most severe cases. Um, why or how they work is not clear. It's just not entirely clear. But we know that they work immediate, uh, initially by modulating or changing the serotonin system. So serotonin is involved somehow. But perhaps serotonin is having um, its effects on other neurotransmitters or on other systems, secondary systems. So um, it maybe kicks off a chain of reactions. And maybe there's also the yeah. theory... There's also the theory that, of course, that changes in serotonin changes how you perceive the world. And so it, that's why, for example, it takes antidepressants time to start working, that they don't work straight away. Because when you change your amounts of neurotransmitters, then you're also changing how, you know, you see something as negative or you see it as positive. And over time, when you start to see things as less negative and more positive, then your mood changes. So that's the current theory that antidepressants work by changing the transmission of neurotransmitters, not just serotonin, because noradrenaline's involved, dopamine's involved. Uh, but when you give these antidepressants, they start to change that system. And that system in turn changes how you perceive situations in your environment. And in time, that changes your mood. That's the current theory about how antidepressants hmm. work. But chemically, biochemically, oh, yeah. So, so chem, so, so the two two things are not compatible, are not incompatible. You can still say that oh, just by changing serotonin doesn't cause depression, and that can be true. And at the same time, it can be true that if you take something that's got serotonin 
um, chemicals in it that will change your serotonin function, that, that that can also change your mood over time. So I don't think they're incompatible. But it, I think what it reminds us is that we still are not fully aware of how our moods and um, our experiences of um, low mood and anxiety are really um, driven by changes in neurotransmitters. I think that's what, what we realize is that we don't know exactly how they work. But if you're depressed yeah. and you're taking these treatments, um, they do work. They do work for a lot of people. For some people, they don't work, just like lots of drugs don't work for everybody. And for the people that they don't work for, that could be for many reasons. It could be they're not on the right dose. They're not on the right drug. Maybe they need to be on a different type of antidepressant depending on their symptoms. Maybe they've got their depression isn't that um, severe. And maybe they need uh, a psychological therapy would be better, like CBT. Or maybe um, actually here in the UK, the NHS actually prescribes exercise for low levels of depression. Yeah. So again, if you're not feeling too yeah. severely depressed and you're still able to function and be able to go and exercise, that that actually is prescribed um, as a good treatment for some people. So again, it's certainly not straightforward, lots and lots of different factors. <laughs> but I guess the take home message is, even though we don't fully understand how these neurotransmitters are involved in our low mood, manipulating them with SSRIs does work and does work well many people yes well like like we said before it's it's very complex my thought on is it was just because i recently uh found out how many people in sweden are on antidepressives and i was shocked it was like 11 percent of adults yeah which is a lot and i know in the u.s it's it's way more than that yeah so my thought was like I might be wrong, I don't know, but my first thought was like, they're probably over-prescribing the medication. And also, maybe a lot of these people just need a better situation. Like, like Absolutely. Maybe you're just depressed because your life sucks, like in some area. Yeah. And, and it could be as simple as just changing that thing that sucks, which is probably harder to do. Yeah. Yeah. But that would be probably better. But everyone wants a, a, a quick fix and a, a pill to fix it because that would be way easier. Uh, so obviously, um, I, I'm not a doctor. I have no clue. If it's working for you, please don't stop taking it. Uh, it's probably a great thing for many people. Yes. But to hear that the numbers are so high, to me, it just... Uh, is a sign that a lot of people just are in bad situations that they're not happy with. And I think trying to help people change their situations rather than just giving them a pill would, would in the long run, probably be more helpful in, in many cases, not in all cases, obviously, but in many cases. Absolutely. Uh, but that's just my yeah. take on it. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, no, you're absolutely well, right. Kira, yeah. Uh, it's been uh, a pleasure having you on the show and, and talking to you has been amazing. I, I love talking to knowledgeable people like you and uh, learn, just learning more things about myself and, and just human behavior and, and how, how we work and how the brain works. It's so interesting to me. 
So thank you so, so much for coming on. Is there anything that you want to plug or maybe tell the listeners where they can find you and your research and, and what it is that you do? Um, I've never been asked that before. That's a good question. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I suppose you could, uh, yeah, you could just find me on my university webpage at the University of Reading in the UK and you can see some of the research that we've done there. So my lab is the Neuroscience of Reward Group, NRG. Uh, do you get it? Energy. Um, and so, yeah, that's where, you, <laughs> <laughs> that's where you can see some of the work that we're yeah. doing in relation to reward, mental health, and thinking about, you know, if we understand it better, the reward system, for example, in depression, then we can develop better treatments for all those people that we talked about yes. who the antidepressants don't work for. Um, so there being some people... Yeah you know, that maybe their depression is more like a lack of interest, a lack of motivation is their dominant symptom. So that's what they really struggle with. And currently, the treatments that we have for that don't seem to do very well. They might make people feel less sad and less anxious, but they don't seem to make people more motivated or more interested in life. And so that's something I'm very passionate about. Mm. It's something that we want to understand better and then develop new treatments or interventions for yeah perfect thank you again for for coming on the show it was very very interesting and uh i'm sure the listeners will be very uh appreciative of uh hearing your thoughts and and you sharing your knowledge thank you so much it's been a pleasure perfect until next time thank you kira bye bye thanks for listening Make sure to follow and subscribe to stay up to date on new episodes. Until next time.